uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, if you would turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians tonight, and uh, we're going to be jumping in to 2 Corinthians chapter number 5, verses 9 and 10, 9 and 10. I was so encouraged studying through the passage last week, I really enjoyed preaching through those eight verses, and so we're going to be jumping into the next two tonight, verse 9 and 10, so if you can stand in honor of the Word of God tonight. Um, let's go ahead and read verse 1 down to verse number 10, all right? I like to, I like to always upset our people back there that I give verses to, and then they're like, oh, you changed it on me. See, they'll change it real quick. See how fast they are? They're like pros. Yeah, yeah they're used to it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It's my winter weather friend over there. So... <laughs> The Bible says, for we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven, if so, being that being, if so be that being clothed we shall not be found naked. For, what, uh, for we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not that we should be unclothed, but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of life. And he's talking about putting off the body of the flesh so you could have the new eternal body that God will one day give us at the resurrection. Verse 5, now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God who also hath given us the earnest of the spirit. Therefore we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body we are absent from the Lord for we walk by faith not by sight. If you read verse 8 with me, we are confident I say and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. He says, wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. And then if you'd read verse 10 with me, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Father, again, we thank you for your word. Blessed as we read and study through these passages, may your Holy Spirit grant us understanding and application of these truths. In Christ's name we pray and God's people again said, Man, you may be seated this evening. Paul, so in chapter 5, has been discussing the temporary nature of our life on earth. And he talks about the body as being like a tent um, that is just dwelt in for a brief amount of time. And he's seeking to give the church at Corinth a proper perspective on life to get a biblical view of time and reality so that you can focus on what is really important. You know, it's sometimes it's when you step back and look at the grand scheme of things that you begin to see what are the vital priorities of life, what really matters. It's in the macro views. And so Paul's doing that here. Paul had faced great persecution for the sake of the gospel. And if you were to examine Paul's life in terms of the flesh, there was nothing in his physical life that was really desirable. I mean, when you looked at him just in a, in a physical sense, you really wouldn't want to be Paul. <laughs> in, in terms of physical comfort, he didn't have it. He traveled in a day when traveling was not easy to get around. He spent many, many months at sea at times. He endured shipwrecks. One of them, he said, left him a night in the deep. Can you imagine swimming around? For a whole night, lost at sea, he faced imprisonments, being cold and hungry. He was no stranger to the pain of discomfort. In terms of physical acceptance, he faced people who could not tolerate his message. They sought to kill him. Uh, really, wherever he went, he faced that. He faced being rejected, even at times, by those that he loved and poured his life into. He told the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians twelve fifteen. He said, I will gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, he says, the less I be loved. He summarizes much of the challenges that he went through in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 25 through 33. He says, thrice or three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep and journeys often in perils of water, perils of robbers, perils of my own countrymen, and perils by the heathen, perils in the city. And, and he just goes on for several verses talking about the incredible physical challenges that he went through. He ends that section by talking about how he escaped being killed by being lowered down out of a window from a, in a basket to escape the city. 
I mean, I mean, in terms of his physical life, there was nothing that you would desire to be Paul in. So here in chapter 5, Paul is really putting things into perspective. He's giving us ultimate reality. He's telling us what really matters and what we should really be focused upon and what we should aim our lives at. Colossians 3 summarizes this well. He says, If you be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. And what he's saying, if you be risen with Christ, if you're walking in the new man, if you are born again, if you're a child of God, your aim in life should be different than what it was before your conversion. He says, set your affection on things above. Because again, what you set your affection on, you're going to set your aim to, isn't it? Not on things on the earth, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Now, at the end of chapter 4, Paul gives uh, us some of the greatest verses to keep our hearts in check as we journey through some different challenges in life. Where, where we live in a world where sin runs rampant, righteousness is persecuted, lies are promoted, truth is silenced and censored, perversions accepted, purity is not. I mean, every week I just, I'm just saddened, I think, more than anything when I, when I see the news reports, I see the, 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 the deception that's going on, the evil that's being promoted. We have a current president that is the most progressive president we've ever had in the United States history. There's never been a president who has pushed what I would quite frankly call sinful things, just sinful things. And that's not, that's not being political, that's being very truthful. And you'd have to close your eyes to not see that. When, when, you're, when you're taking a pride flag and putting it above the American flag and promoting these things constantly, transgenderism is a lie. It is evil. It is, it is terrible. It is, um, and, and what they do to people, what they're doing to these children, and, and, and some of these surgeries that they're doing to little children, chemical castrations, that they're, and, and the president thinks it's wrong if you don't allow little children, to ha- like young people, to have these. This is what we give to pedophiles who go to prison. We're giving to children now? And you're going to call us evil to try to protect children from this? I mean, it's insane. The rabbit trails are all over the place right now. They're like little bunnies running. But I tell you, friends, it is a, it is a, it is a terrible thing. Um, you know, the same people who say they want us to accept them, can't even accept themselves. They can't accept themselves. And, 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 it's, and it's becoming the most intolerant voice I've ever seen in a culture, just the, the absolute disdain for the truth of God. There, there, are, there was a kid in our church who wore a shirt to school that just said there's only two genders and had a verse on it, and he was threatened to be kicked out, like to be suspended from school if he didn't take it off. Is that tolerance? Is that tolerance? This is, this is the world we live in, though, isn't it? They can tolerate everything but except the Christians. And we like or kind of folks that have different views from us, right? We love them. We pray for them. We share the Christ with them. And, um, and it's just, a, it's a tragic thing. And so, so we, we stand for the truth, we stand for righteousness, we stand, stand on the Word of God, we do so with boldness, but we do so with grace. And, and in this world, Paul says in verse 16 of chapter 4, he says, For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. And then he talks about all the things that you can go through on this earth for the cause of Christ. He says, it's like a light affliction, which is but for a moment who works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Should we expect everything on earth to be just? I mean, if Jesus was dealt the most unjust judgment, do we as his followers think we should have perfect justice? Should we demand that? The Bible says we're rewarded eternally if we take persecution patiently and not seek our own revenge. Verse 18, he says, while we look not at things which are seen, but things that are not seen. 
We, we, we have to have that view. For the things which are seen are temporal, the things that are not seen are eternal. If the world wants to fight over the tent life on sand, they can have that life. But we're, we're, we're seeking for an eternal home, aren't we? I mean, this is, this is we're, we're, we're citizens of heaven, as, as Paul says in Philippians. And, and, and we stand for the truth, we defend the truth, we do all of those things on the earth, but we don't lose our testimony in doing so. And so today I want to call us to align our hearts and our lives to that of Scripture and to that of Paul. This is, this is really how Paul was able to get through like when you, when you look at him and you're like, physically there's nothing I would want to be Paul. There's nothing that I would desire to be him. But if I had his perspective and his aim, boy, he's on the top of the list. I would love to be like the Apostle Paul. I'd love to have lived his life. And so uh, let me just give you three thoughts out of verse 9 and 10 tonight. And um, just to focus our life in a way that pleases God. And how do we do that? How do we please God? Now, first of all, is aiming your lives to please the Lord. Aim your life to please the Lord. Paul's one focus in life was to be pleasing to the Lord. Look at verse 9. He says, wherefore we labor. That word means we make it our aim. We, we like set our focus on this. That whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him or pleasing to him. The word labor there is from... Two Greek words, phileo and time. It's phileo temai is a Greek word, and it and it's and it means to strive earnestly, uh, to set your aim upon. In later Greek, it denoted a restless eagerness in any pursuit to strive to be zealous. It gives the picture of one who has a strong ambition to finish the goal or the task at hand. It is in the present tense in the Greek verb. It means that something Paul was constantly aiming to do. And it's also in the plural in Greek, which means it's not just for him, but it's also for us. Now, what was Paul striving for? What was he laboring and earnestly pursuing uh, as the aim of his life? And, 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 and it says that we may be accepted of him. The word accepted there is Eurestas in the Greek, it's EU is, is a compound word again. It means good and arrest, uh, the, the rest of the word, arrestas, means pleasing. Eurestas, that I would be well pleasing or, or very well pleasing to God. That, that, that I want my life to be very much accepted, well pleasing, very much pleasing to the Lord. Spurgeon once described his ambition. He said, I know of nothing which I would choose to have as the subject of my ambition for life than to be kept faithful to my God till death. Now, now Paul uses this Greek word, eurestos, nine times in the New Testament, constantly seeking to aim believers at this pursuit of seeking to please the Lord. Like, like your goal, my goal in life should, should be to, I, I want to please God. I want, to, I, I want God to be well pleased with the way I live, with what I do, with what I spend my time, energy, and resources on, how I raise my children, what I do for a living. Do I seek to live in a world among the lost in a way that pleases the Lord? Uh, when's the last time you stopped and said, is what I'm doing pleasing to God? Am, is my life focused on that. Now, let's take a moment and look at those things that Paul says does please the Lord. And, and let me just give you at least six things the Bible says, specifically the same word it uses that is well-pleasing to God. Now, Romans 12, verse 1 and 2 says this, very well-known verses, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. In other words, what God has done for you, I am beseeching you, I'm pleading with you, brethren, based on all the sacrifice of Christ, what God did for you, that you would present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and arrestos, or well-pleasing, very well-pleasing and acceptable unto God is the idea. Now, and it says, which is your reasonable service? And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and, ex and arrest us or very good and acceptable and well-pleasing and perfect will of God. He wants you to prove what's very pleasing to God. He wants you to live that way. So Romans 1 through 11 is all like doctrine. 
Romans 12 gets into application. So before you know what to apply, you have to lay down the truth. And that's why he gives all these passages of a doctrinal uh, exhortation through 11 chapters. In the first two verses of application of all of those 11 chapters, both verses have the word, do it to be pleasing to God. Do it to be pleasing to God. You think sometimes people can seek to do doctrinal things or biblical things to be seen of men, to be pleasing to mom, dad, husband, wife, pastor, teacher, someone else. Now, Romans 12, 1, when it says present your bodies, it literally means this, make yourself available to God. Present your life as available to God. Lord, here am I. It's what Isaiah said. It's what Paul said on the road to Damascus. He said, here am I, Lord. Uh, and then it says to be a living sacrifice. This is to fulfill Luke 9.23 when Jesus says, uh, take up your cross and follow me. And then he says you need to present your life as available to God, uh, is, is willing to give your all, willing to die for God as a living sacrifice. And you do so uh, with, with, as it a holy offering, that, that your life would be holy, set apart unto God from the filthiness of the world. So what he's saying here is if you want to please the Lord, present your life to God, offer it fully without reservation, die to yourself, repent of your sins, that you might present a holy life to God, and that will please him. God will be pleased with that. Secondly, another way you can please the Lord is is, uh, what Romans 14, verse 15 through 18. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over there as well. Uh, You can, and, and here Paul is speaking of the kind of behavior that pleases God. And it's, and it's a behavior that seeks to edify other believers, edify other believers, a life that is void of offending our brothers and sisters in Christ, one that builds up the body of Christ, removes offenses. And in Romans 14, he's dealing with gray areas, things that could be wrong at times, things that could be right at times, depending upon how it affects people around you. He says in verse 15, but if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, eating meat offered to idols, now walkest thou not in love or in charity. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. You ever, you ever known those people that just, they always want to debate over things? You know, let me ask you, what do you think about this? And then they want to argue with you. And that, that's not well-pleasing to God. That, that will detract from people. So it's okay to, to seek questions, but it's not good to be contentious, right? So, so he's, saying, he's saying, seek that which produces righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Verse 18, for he that in these things serveth Christ is arrestos to God, or well-pleasing and acceptable to God and approved of men. God is pleased when you, based on this passage in context, will make personal sacrifices of personal liberties that could be stumbling blocks to other people. You remove those things from your life so to avoid offending other believers, that is pleasing to God. So if there was, there was like a cultural issue today that was, causes people to be stumbled up and offended, you know, for, for example, I don't drink alcohol, but if, if I think that's a gray area in, in many ways, you could, there's some people who could, you know, Bible, you could, you, could, you could give some defense on both sides. Um, I do believe drinking hard liquor and even a lot of the beers today, uh, the Bible would condemn that, and I could give biblical support for that. But, but I think there's some gray area there, and I think that, um, the, the, but, but at, the, at the end of the day, if that would cause people to stumble, if I was a Christian leader and that caused people to stumble, I could, I could argue for myself that oh, I feel like I have the right to do this, da 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 and um, but if that caused them to stumble, then who am I loving more, them or me? Myself. Now, I, knowledge puffs me up, but wisdom will seek to build them up. And that's what love does. It's willing to give that up. So I would say this. If you have anything in your life that you find that causes other people to stumble, get rid of it. Just give it up. That's well-pleasing to God. If it doesn't cause people to stumble, then you have freedom to do certain things in life, then that's between you and the Lord, and I'm not your Holy Spirit, and you can have freedom there and join the Holy Spirit, and there's no problem with that. Uh, again, every time you ever talk about gray areas in life, there's going to be people who feel like they're white or black, aren't there? You mention a gray area, and they're like, what do you mean that's a gray area? You know, that People get all stirred up, calm down, 
get all worked up over things. It, it, you, that may be a gray area or a black area to you, and then, then keep that out of your life. And if it's a white area to a person, then they have freedom to do that. I do know Jesus said there's nothing in and of itself that enters into the mouth that is defiling. Right? It's what comes out of the mouth. So, uh, number three. Living and walking in the light and not in darkness or sin pleases God. Ephesians 5 8 says, For you were sometimes darkness, but now are you light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is arrest us or what is well pleasing and acceptable unto the Lord. How do you do that? How do you prove that? You prove it when you walk in the light. It says, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful work of darkness, but rather reprove them. Um, when you live in the light of purity, you will begin to know what God's pleased with and what he's not pleased with. Because the light reveals what's right and wrong. You're, you're not walking in the dark. You'll be able to tell what's... You, you'll, he'll give you discernment. You'll be like, you know, that's not a good idea for me to do that anymore. I've had people in church who used to have things that they would do or you know, maybe somewhat of a gray area in their life. Maybe it was not a good thing in their life. And then they'll, they'll come to me and say, you know what? I ended up realizing this is not healthy for me. I need to get rid of this. And, and why did you do that? Because the light was turned on and you begin to see that that's not something that's healthy. And ultimately it wasn't pleasing to God. And you had that sense of restlessness in your soul. Let me say this. You will never give up something for God that you will not be more eternally rewarded for. You will be so much better off. So doesn't mean you give up everything that's good in life. It means that you give up everything that's bad in life, right? Number four, Paul told the Macedonian church at Philippi, here's a fourth thing, that their missionary support, their financial giving and supporting him was pleasing to God. Philippians 4.18, he says, But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing, a restos to God. This is your giving to support Paul, he's saying, uh, was well-pleasing to God. So, you know, as we give and we support missionaries and, and support ministries around the world, that is pleasing to God. Number five, children obeying your parents is pleasing to God. And all the parents said, hey, get them all in here. Get them kids in here. Colossians 3.20, let's all read this together. Children, obey your parents in all things. Well-pleasing unto the Lord, right? So, obedience to the Lord pleases God. Disobedience displeases the Lord. So, what should, parent, what should children do? They should be obedient. Well, what if my parents ask me to do something sinful? Well, that's why the Bible says, um, in, in the other parallel passage of that in the book of Ephesians, uh, obey your parents in the Lord. Uh, what, what things they do that are lined up with, with truth, not sinful things. Obviously, you always obey the highest authority. You don't disobey the Lord to obey your parents. So, but also, parents, you're involved in this. You're involved in this. As parents, we need to make sure our children understand the importance of obedience. And, 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 and let me give you uh, some things I think that are important to raise children uh, to be faithful and to love the Lord. Number one is be a good testimony to them. Uh, they're going to follow your life, not just your lips. So live it out. You know, my, my children have heard me preach for all these years of their life growing up. I'm their, you know, I'm not only their dad, but I'm their pastor. Some of you may, may have ever thought about that. I'm, I'm not only a husband to my wife, but I'm the pastor of my wife. So it's, you know, so, um, so they get to see my preaching lived out at home. Is that good? That's important, isn't it? And I can tell you... Uh, that's the most important kind of preaching you can really do. Because if you can't live out the preaching, then that's hypocritical, isn't it? So, so be a good testimony. Now, um, we all as parents fail, right? We all realize how much better we could do. But be a good testimony. Live out the truth. And then use the Bible to teach as well as to correct. What can really damage children is when we use the Bible as law and not, as, not with grace. You know, we only bring verses up in the Bible when they disobey us. Don't do that. I, I, that, that is such a small fraction of what the Bible conversations are in our home. I don't even, it, it would be probably like 
percent of the time in, in talking about the Word of God, and maybe five percent, I don't know. It's been a, it used to be a lot more. There used to be more. People say the teenage years are the hardest. It's been to eat. Praise God. It, I don't knock on wood or nothing. I don't believe in that. I just praise God for that. That's been the easiest for us. And uh, it was stressful when they were little ornery things, you know, running around the house and <laughs> sticking forks and outlets and everything. <laughs> You look back, they're holding the cord to you on one end, and then they're holding it at the end. It's not good. So um, I'm light daddy up. So use the Bible to teach as well as to correct. You know, it's, um, and I can't tell you how many times through the years I would hear my wife sit down with my kids, and, and I would do the same. But, you know, the reason that you need to do your homework is because this is pleasing the Lord. You need to do this because it honors God. And, and you point them to a vertical motive instead of a horizontal motive. Uh, so... So, so children obeying their parents, but we need, to, we need to make that a big deal. And we need to let our kids know early on, if you're a young parent, if you've got children at home, let them know that, hey, uh, if you want to please the Lord, just know your obedience to me is pleasing to God. I know I'm not going to be a perfect parent, and, uh, and if you see errors in my life, feel free to come to me and talk to me about that uh, child. And, and sometimes we have to apologize to our children. Uh, and then number six, doing God's will is well-pleasing to God. Hebrews 13 verse 20 says this, now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect. That word just means complete and prepared in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is arrest us or well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory. Now, where do we find the will of God? And the answer is in the word of God. And, 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 and it's pleasing to God when we do the will of God. And, and you know, the Bible says his word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. We are a wise man when we build on the word of God, Matthew 7. Uh, we want to be like Joshua was commanded in Joshua 1, 8 through 9 to, to meditate on the word of God. We know it makes you like a bountiful tree planted by a river of water as Psalms 1 talks about. Uh, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, Colossians three sixteen. So, so doing the will of God is pleasing to God. He is pleased when you read the word and live that out. God will be pleased with your life. So those are just some, some there, there's many other things that please the Lord, but I just want you to know those were, those were times that Paul would use the same phrase in speaking about this is pleasing God and you need to seek to please God in these areas. Now, some things that will hinder us from aiming our life to please the Lord is love of money, wealth, or possessions. Jesus tells us clearly in Matthew 6, 24, either you serve money or you serve God. Mammon there just means possessions, money. Proverbs 23, 4 says, labor not to be rich. Money and possessions can really hinder our life aiming at God. Secondly, to be accepted and pleasing to people, like when we're, when we're seeking to please people. Galatians 1.10, Paul said, for do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says to the church at Corinth, back in the previous book, he says, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yeah, I judge not my own self. Uh, he says, for I know nothing by myself, yet I am I not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is a Lord. And, and he begins to say that we're not, don't be so concerned what men think of you. Be concerned what God thinks about you. Another thing that can hinder people from being used by God is, is, is seeking a position or personal goals, ambitions that are not the goals and plans that God has for you. You can miss aiming at God's will because you're aiming at some personal ambition, some position. And sometimes I worry when kids graduate from high school and and, 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 and sometimes they, they're, they're concerned about having a direction in life that sounds really good to people. There's a lot of people that can, can get themselves into um, a, a, a self-focused idea of what they think they want in life, but it's not really what God would want for them in life. You know, I, I never want my kids to grow up and be what they want to be, and I never want them to grow up and be what I want them to be. I want them to grow up and be what God wants them to be. Does that make sense? Uh, there's some kids who go off to college and go off to some thing in life, some career choice, and they've never really seriously contemplated what God would want for them to do and really pray over that and really spend time. I can tell you there's some miserable people in life who got on the wrong path. And so the great Old Testament prophet Jeremiah had a scribe who wrote down his words, and his name was Baruch. 
If I had a son, I would have named him Caleb. My second choice would have been Baruch. I love, you know, we need some little Baruchs running around. Isn't that a manly name? Hey, Baruch! It's like, you know, the guy's going to be a linebacker or something. You know? Baruch's coming out of you. Love that name. I had, I, had a, I, had, I had a guy in a church, he was almost persuaded. And then he named his son Joshua. And I'm like, well, I can't, I can't reject that. That's a great name. Yeah, great name. But Jeremiah 36, 4 says, Then Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord which he had spoken upon a roll, a scroll, a roll of a book. So Baruch, if you, if you were to read through Jeremiah, uh, it speaks about him as uh, coming from a noble family. Uh, he, he very likely would have risen up to a high position. But God suppressed that wrong worldly ambition in him in Jeremiah 45.5. This is what, it's what the Bible says to Baruch. It says, Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. For behold, I will bring evil upon all flesh, saith the Lord, but thy life will I give thee for a prey in all places whither thou goest. I'm going to bring judgment upon this nation, but I'm going to reward you for your faithfulness. Don't seek great things for yourself. God calls Baruch's life to do something more than pursue earthly, physical, temporary positions, to seek the work of God as described to the great prophet Jeremiah. God called Baruch away from the sandcastles to the rock of God's word, from elevating the temporary to elevating the eternal, to seek to please God, not earthly flesh. Jeremiah at the time of this was shut up in a prison. He was limited in what he could do, but Baruch was able to write down on a scroll all the words of Jeremiah. He presented it to the king in that time. If you've never read Jeremiah 36 and are familiar with that story, I would really encourage you to do that. The king ends up burning the scroll, burns the word of God. He didn't like it, so he burned it up. You didn't have copies, right? So everybody's like, well, what was written on the scroll? So is the word of God lost? You know what Jeremiah 36, 32 says after the king burned it up? Then took Jeremiah another scroll and gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote therein from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire, and there were added beside unto them many like words. Isn't that interesting? You can't destroy the word of God, Amen. You have the Word of God in your hand preserved because man can't destroy the living Word of God. Interestingly, in 1975, a collection of nearly 250 clay seals were found 44 miles southwest of Jerusalem. These small lumps of clay are impressed with a seal. They're called a bulla, which is an ancient time served as an official signature for the individual. And on one of them was a picture, I don't know if we have that back there, but a picture of uh, one of these um, clay um, bullas that had the name Baruch, which was the scribe of Jeremiah. They found that in 1975. So I would ask you, what is your desire in life? To, to seek physical things or spiritual things, the temporary or the eternal? Some earthly possession or an eternal position from what God would want you to do? Have you made it your one ambition and goal in life to please the Lord? That's what, that's what Paul did. And secondly, to aim your life to make eternal reality your present perspective. Verse number 9, look back at 2 Corinthians 5 verse 9. He says this, wherefore we labor. Again, this is our aim. Wherefore we, we aim our life this way, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted, arrest us, or well-pleasing to God. Now, what does present or absent mean in verse 9? Well, Paul had just discussed in verse 1 through 8, being home in the body was to be absent from the Lord, and to be absent from the body was to be home with the Lord. And in verse number 6, he says, therefore, we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. Now, he's not, that doesn't mean that God's not with us because we're in our physical body. It just means we're not in the fullness of God's presence. In verse 8, he says, we are confident, willing to be absent from the body so we can be present with the Lord. Paul is saying that whether we are here on earth or one day in heaven with the Lord, our aim, our focus, our goal will not change. It is always to be pleasing to the Lord. What he is teaching in both chapter 4 and 5 is this, friends, is to live your life in such a way that matters for eternity. Live now as though you were living before the Lord there. Does that make sense? Whether we're absent or present, 
whether we're present here in the body or we're in heaven with the Lord, we just want to please God. So what in your life will matter a hundred years from now? What, what in your life would you say, this is really going to matter a hundred years from now? What's going to matter a thousand years from now? That, that's what he's calling us to here in verse 9. Live with that end in mind. Well, I would, I would really just want to make sure I please the Lord. Yeah, th- that's what you want to live for. So if you're Paul, and if you're like, I just want to please God. Well, Paul, Paul, I want you to go preach to the heathen. I want you to preach to the Jews. I want you to preach to the Gentiles. Then no matter what the physical persecution came in Paul's life, that didn't matter to him because that wasn't his aim. He wasn't looking for comfort. And since his aim was on something higher than that, the physical would never deter him. Does that make sense? That's why he could keep going. He wasn't in it for comfort. He's not like us so often. <laughs> I mean, I mean if, it's a, if it's a cold, rainy day, church attendance can be down. If the, if the air conditioner went out in the car, well, I got a 30-minute drive without air conditioning. I'll never forget, we had an 80-some-year-old lady one time in Chillicothe. We had like a couple inches of snow, she, and her door was frozen. She drove like 30 minutes holding her door shut while it was not latched the whole way. At the same time, there's full-grown men that are like, well, some couple inches of snow on the ground. Well, that's between them and the Lord, but I'm like, you know, I would have told this dear lady, it would have been better if you could have stayed at home probably that morning. <laughs> Kill me knowing that. I'm like, somebody get out there and fix this lady's door. But, but we need to think about, in our life, what are we living for? Make the eternal reality your present perspective. Live as Paul says in verse 7. He said, we walk by what? We fight. That's future, isn't it? That's, that's spiritual. That's not temporary. One of the greatest examples of one who missed it is in Luke 12. I, I will never get over this story. I mean, this is, the, this is the most foolish guy that I think I could ever read about in the Bible, outside of probably Judas. I mean, Judas, as they say, kissed the door of heaven and went to hell, right? But if you have your Bibles, look over to Luke 12. I just... Flip over to Luke chapter 12. Look at verse number 5. Jesus is preaching to what the Bible calls a innumerable multitude of people. Massive crowds. The, the word there for innumerable is a Greek word, morias, uh, which is like 10,000, but it's, it's just the highest designation they had to use. Massive numbers of people. And he's teaching them, like, let me give you just a glimpse of what he taught them. Look at verse 5. He said, I will forewarn you who you shall fear. Fear him, which after he hath killed, hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say, fear him. Verse 8 and 9, he says, Whosoever shall confess me before uh, men, him will the Son confess before the angels of God. And he that denieth me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Verse number 10 through 11, he talks about the unpardonable sin. I mean, he's talking about eternal, massively important truths. Don't fear man, fear the, fear the one who can kill you and cast you into hell. Uh, you need to confess me so that you would be confessed before the Father. There's an impartable sin. I mean, he, he's going over some important things, persecution that will come. And then verse 13, at the end of his sermon, one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. So Jesus just gets done preaching on eternity. And a guy stands up and says, tell my brother to divide the money with me. I mean, the, did you just hear what Jesus said? You know what that guy was worried about? He was worried about what happened in the next 10 minutes, then 10,000 years. He didn't care about where he was at in 100 years. And he said unto him, man, who made me a judge or divider over you? And don't you love that? Jesus is like, I'm not getting tied up with your stuff. Yes, that gives me a lot of liberty as a pastor. I like that. People try to pull me into things. I'm like, I'm not getting involved in that. No. Well, you're, I'm not everything. <laughs> I won't even tell you the kind of calls I get through the week. Pastor, can you, can you yeah. I, hey, I'll bend over, I'll help all these things, I'll do all this stuff to bend over backwards to help folks, but I'm not, I, you know, I preach and teach, and, uh, but there's other things that I'm not, an, I'm not an expert in all things. I think you guys all know that, verse 15. But look what he says. 
And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of things which he possesses. Is that good news? Are you glad today that your life isn't based upon what you possess physically? There's a lot more that you have than what you have. And, he, and, and, and this, this is so important that he launches a parable into it. Verse 16, And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. He thought within himself, saying, what shall I do? I mean, I, my bank accounts are full. I, there's nowhere else to put all my stuff. He said, this is what I do. I'll pull down my barns. I'll build greater. i bestow all my goods and fruits and goods. And I will say to my soul, look how much. You, you have retirement forever. As good as laid up for many years. Take thine ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. You'll never see God telling Christians to do that. Like just, there's nothing wrong with, with cutting back the order you get, doing that, but to quit living as a Christian, to quit living and serving, I tell you what sounds like hell to me is to retire and sit at home and watch TV. I'd rather die over any, that'd be misery. You know, retirement, it just means you, you get to stop doing what you don't want to do to start doing what you do want to do, right? Verse 19, I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for years, take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. He had his plans in place, didn't he? But he didn't know his time ran out. Verse 20, but God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee, and then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that, look at this verse 21, so is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward who? So you can be earthly poor and heavenly rich. You hear that? You can be earthly rich and heavenly poor. So you, you, you better start thinking about where you're investing your life. And that's what Paul's calling us to. And that's why he says in verse 22, the next verse, he says, and he said to his disciples, therefore I say to you, take no thought for your life, what you eat, your body, what you put on. Don't, don't worry about all that external stuff. Verse 31, he says, seek the kingdom of God. All these things will be added to you. Get busy about serving the Lord. Do something for God. Invest in eternity. Time's wasting. Do now what matters a hundred years from now. Live that way. And so... When you look at that, you're like, well, that's how Paul lived. Paul was living like if he were living before Jesus. That's why he didn't care what happened physically. It wasn't his concern. When they said, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, you'll be killed. He's like, yeah. I'm not only ready to be persecuted, I'm ready to give my life as an offering to God. What do I, to, to live as Christ and to die as gain? I mean, you're, you're going to threaten me with heaven. Like, like he, that's how he lived. That's why he could shed off all that external pressure. Isn't it amazing how much, if, if physical things can cause a person to quit serving Jesus, they were serving for the physical things. Right? That's why if I quit preaching because some person kept attacking me, then I'm actually serving God for, to please people. Because they, whatever could make me stop or make you stop serving God becomes your God. Because it's controlling you. Right? Whatever controls you becomes your master. We're all serving something. And if you serve the Lord, then you become free from men. You become free from things. And I tell you, you we have to guard our hearts from all of that. But then the number three, and then we'll wrap this sermon up, verse 10. He says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. So thirdly, aim your life to be prepared for the future judgment. Paul speaks of what's known as the judgment seat of Christ. Romans 14.10 says, Why dost thou judge thy brother? says, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The word appear, phanero, is the Greek word, we shall all appear. It literally means to make manifest, to make clear, visible, to reveal. Philip Hughes comments on this word, it says to be made manifest means not just to appear, but be, to be laid bare, stripped of every outward facade and respectability, and openly revealed in the full and true reality of one's character. You are totally, and I am totally going to be exposed in the inner person to who we are, why we did what we did, all of it laid before God bare. 
Arthur Way writes, for we have all to stand stripped of all disguise before Messiah's bar that each may receive the recompense for deeds whereof the body was the instrument. You're living in a tent that God is going to bring before him one day and, and, and judgment will be based upon what you did in that body. We shall all appear, it says, before the judgment seat of Christ. The word judgment there, judgment seat of Christ, is the, is the word bema seat, judgment. Now, it's a Greek word, and the word bema just spoke about an elevated chair where a judge would sit. And they had these during athletic games in those days. The president or umpire of the arena would sit upon that seat. They would observe the games. Rewards would be given to the winners. If an athlete... Um, ran fairly and won. He received an olive wreath or crown. And, and the focus of that time in those athletic games, the Bema seat, was uh, those who would receive rewards and those who would lose rewards. I like what David Jeremiah said. He said, at the Bema seat of Christ, earthly wreaths and trophies and newspaper clippings and Super Bowl rings will be long forgotten. They'll be no more important than brushing your teeth or buying a newspaper at a corner store. But what we do now for eternity, even the smallest of deeds, will count forever. Is that, should, should we think about that? That's why you're here, isn't it? So, so good to hear these things in our hearts. And he says that everyone may receive or be recompensed or to be paid to them what is due, the things done in their body according to that which is done, whether it be good or kakos or bad. Bad here can be translated as worthless, something that doesn't have any value. God will separate the believer's worthless works from their worthy works. Believers will not be judged for their salvation at the Bema Seat Judgment because all of our sins have been cast as far as the east is from the west. Psalms 103 says, and Hebrews 10.17 says, our sins and iniquities he does not remember anymore. So the believer's sins will not be judged here, but our service to God will be judged. And are you ready for that? Are you living in a way that is preparing you to stand before God and be judged in your service before Him? Now, that day's coming. Like, we will all stand before God, totally open to what we've done for Him. The Bible tells us all believers will be there, specifically those from the church age and on. Just to get a little technical, Old Testament saints will be resurrected at the end of the seven-year tribulation, with the tribulation saints. That's what the Bible says. He'll separate the sheep from the goats. Sometimes people get confusion, have confusion. Uh, they, they have confusion about the, uh, like the rapture and when these, there's, there's multiple resurrections that will happen. The, 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 the rapture, the resurrection will be for church age saints. So up to that time, then that's who this judgment seat of Christ will be for at the end of this. And that's going to be this judgment seat of Christ will happen during the seven year tribulation. So the rapture happens. We're caught up to heaven. Uh, the judgment seat of Christ. Then you have the marriage supper, of the lamb. All of that goes on at that time. Uh, I don't have time to explain all of that. I have other sermons that I've preached on that. If you Google search my name with probably the judgment seat of Christ, you'll be able to find one of those sermons. Now, this judgment will take place in heaven. Jesus Christ will be the judge. John 5.22 says, For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. Uh, another passage you can look at is 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10 through 15. And, and, it, and actually, just read those verses. Time's almost gone. But here, Paul describes what, what it will be like, like what's going to happen here. He says, according to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I laid the foundation, the foundation is Jesus Christ, the gospel, and another builds thereon. But let every man take heed how he builds thereon, for other foundation can no man lay that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon the foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, he gives six different elements that you can build upon. He says, every man's work shall be made manifest, the day shall declare it, it shall be revealed by fire. So the difference between wood, hay, stubble, and gold, silver, precious stones is if you set fire to those, three of them would be burned up and three of them would be left standing. And so our works will be made manifest by the fire of God. His consuming glory will burn up the worthless works and validate what is worthy. It says, if any man work abide which he hath built thereon, he shall receive a what? Receive a reward. 
We have that verse 14 reward. Verse 15, if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. There will be a loss of reward. But he himself shall be saved yet so as by fire. Because the fire will manifest also that they had true saving faith. So listen, some of the things that make something a worthy work versus a worthless work is our motive. Am I doing it for the glory of God or to be seen by men? Do you remember when Jesus said, uh, they pray so that they could be seen of men. Behold, I say to you, they have their reward. What was their reward? The applause of men. So when we serve God, when we do things, it needs to be done that God would be honored and not that we would be seen. Pentecost writes, the gold, silver, costly stones are indestructible materials. These are the work of God, which man only appropriates and uses. On the other hand, the wood, hay, and stubble are destructible materials. These are the work of men, which man has produced by his own effort. The apostle was revealing the fact that the examination at the Bema of Christ is to determine that which was done by God through the individual and that which the individual did in his own strength, that which was done for the glory of God and that which was done for the glory of the flesh. And so examine our life as we live for God. Do that which matters for eternity. Um, there will be those who receive rewards at this time. There will be those who lose rewards. There's much I could say about the judgment seat of Christ. That's really a whole other sermon at another time. But in conclusion, I would just say this. You have one life to live in this temporary tent. We, we, we get just a flash of, 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 a, of a life. It's so quick. Aim our life to please the Lord. Every day, Lord, what would be pleasing in your eyes? Aim your life to make the eternal reality your present perspective. Live with the end in mind. Live now for what would matter a hundred years or a thousand years from now. And then aim your life in such a way that you will be prepared to meet God and stand before Him at that judgment, knowing that you have pleased the Lord. Our goal should be this, that when we stand before God, He would say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Amen. Amen.